following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Okay, good morning. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We're looking forward to uh, Brother James coming and sharing the word with us this morning. He's prepared, and uh, here we are. We're ready too, aren't we? Amen. Yeah, we're ready to listen and learn. All right, brother, we welcome you back to the pulpit. Thank you. Thank you. We're turning again to the book of Obadiah. Good morning to each of you. We're glad to be back uh, to our study. The book of Obadiah has 21 verses. And this is our fifth time standing here talking with regard to this book. One of the things that I mentioned when we started is that the number of verses in the book doesn't tell us the value of what is in it. It's a minor prophet. It's called that because there is a short uh, portion. It's a short portion of scripture. There's not a lot of verses in it. But these verses are important. We began in our early part of looking at the book, talking about the name Obadiah. And we concluded that as the name means servant of the Lord, that this particular Obadiah not only bore the name servant of the Lord, but that he was in reality a servant of the Lord. And we can glean that from what we study and see in the passage itself. He is God's vessel fit or fitted for the master's use. And so that's what he's doing. And so we suggested that we should all desire to be one who lives the name that Obazara bears, that is one who serves the Lord. We put down a date for the writing of the book somewhere in the 800s B.C., So that's a long distance from us into the past. And one of the things that's interesting about that for me is that when you consider the passing of years, and then when you read what's here, how some of it seems so contemporary, as if it was written much more recently. And I think part of what we learn from that is is that human nature is what it is. The sin nature is what it is. And the sin nature exhibits itself. It doesn't matter whether it was 1,000 or 2,000, 3,000 years ago or now. And we see that. I indicated that the way that I see the book is divided into what I call two major portions The first of those is in verses 1 through 14. And the focus, or the primary focus there, is on Edom. Edom, as we see, is in trouble, big-time trouble, with the Lord. 
And then the latter part of that, in verses 15 through 21, focuses on the future. Future prospects for Israel and the nations. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind because so much of what we study is focused around Israel. And when God called out Abraham, he was called Abram, but he was renamed Abraham, so we call him Abraham. And as we saw with that covenant that is addressed in chapter 12 of Genesis, that what God was going to do through Abraham was not just for Abraham and his descendants, but that it was for all the world through that means to be blessed, all the world, all the nations to be blessed through that means. That was God's program, his plan, it still is. I pointed out what I called notable expressions in this little book. And one of the comments that I made when I did that is to say, well, we said the book is short with 21 verses. But we also said there are some big things that are being spoken about within the book. And so I just want to review again, just kind of list out quickly here what I put in my list for these notable expressions. And by notable expressions, that basically what I was trying to say is let some of these things catch our attention so we can think about it a bit and consider them. It's easy to read through and be done. And this one you can read through quickly. And then you come back and read again. And you're done. And you say, okay, so what was in there? Right? And I think we can all do that. So here are the terms that I listed out. The first one I have here is vision. The word vision, because we're told in the first part of the chapter that this, what we're looking at, is a vision of Obadiah. And so I said the word vision, and I'm going to say another word about that. Then the expression says the Lord, so that the Lord is presented as one who is speaking, as one who, whose message is being delivered. So says the Lord is an important thing. There's another word here, pride, or it says pride of your heart. Pride is a big deal, and the heart is too. And I also put down here, says in your heart. This is a, a pronouncement, it's speaking to. And it says, you say in your heart. Then there's the expression, your brother. Now we talked about Edom. And he says, there's the expression, your brother. The idea is that a brother should mean something beyond just another person. A brother is a special relationship. And he, Edomites are upbraided because of how they're treated their brother. And then there's the expression, you should not have. And I think that's seven times here. You should not 
have. Clearly, if it says you should not have, they were prior to this pronouncement informed and knew, have been instructed that they should not have done certain things. Don't do these things. You know, we can think about how we are or were when we were kids. And sometimes the parents said, don't do this thing. And then we get caught up short and it's time for reckoning. The parents said, you should not have done that. You already knew you shouldn't have done it. But the point is the time of reckoning had come. It would, be, would have been better to have not done it. <laughs> That's always the case, right? It's always best to do the right thing. But we have a problem because so often we don't. But there's a solution to that, too. God knows all about that. He's made provision for it. But we have to cooperate. And there's another word in my notes that gets to that concept. There is the expression day. It talks about the day. The day work. And so this day, we think about it in a couple of different ways. The day oftentimes is when there is some kind of a special thing happening, a calamity or something of that sort. And then there is that, I would call it a technical term, the day of the Lord, which is an eschatological day, a future day. And that's found in the text here. Then there's this expression which says, as you have done. As you have done. It shall be done to you. Now that's interesting. It reminds us of Luke chapter 6 and verse 31. Which says, and just as you want men to do to you, do also to them. The idea is that if you want someone to treat you well, then treat them well. If you want someone to respect you, respect them. That idea, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Then there's the expression, my holy mountain. Now that's an interesting one because God is speaking. He said, my holy mountain. One of the things that we understand and see is that when God was dealing with the Israelites, he made provision and gave them instructions as to what proper worship was, how to do it, and where. And so they didn't just have free reign to go about saying, I'm worshiping God in any form or fashion that they chose. But God gave them instructions and told them where and how, what to do in order to have the worship to be what is pleasing to him. So that's important. That's here. Then the word nations 
or the nations. That word is here. And it speaks about all the nations. Now, that's expansive. Because, you see, Israel being the central, the central focus of the, all these Old Testament books. But it never is in isolation. It's never a standalone. It is there for a significant purpose, but not to be a one unto itself, not to be a lone ranger. Then there are these expressions, house of Jacob and the house of Joseph and the house of Esau. And that's talking about all these who descended out of these men. And it says something here about them. And there is the expression, my people. My people. The significant thing about that is, is that this is God saying, my people. So these are his people that he's calling my people, the children of Israel. His people in a special sense. And then there is the expression, the kingdom. So I'm going to leave off with that part of it. And I'm going to go now to verse 1. Verse 1, in the way that I have organized this in my notes, provides for us an introduction an introduction to this book of Obadiah. I'm going to read the first verse, and then I will make some comments on that verse. And here is what it says. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a message, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Is that interesting to you? It is to me. Now, one of the words I said, the word vision, is, was in my list. So what is what are we learning here from this word vision used this way? What it's doing is telling us that this is the way by which God's message was communicated to Obadiah. The, the way by which God communicated what was to be said to the people, what the message was. This is his way of communicating that. Now, there is also there, though, notice, thus says the Lord. So the way of communication is through this vision that God has given. But thus says the Lord tells us something. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us whose message it is. We've talked about this a number of times. 
See, the message has content. And someone provided the content. The person speaking the message may not be the one who provided the content. But the content is the issue. That's what's important. I'm here, and I'm reading, and I have here before me, we said we have God's revelation, what God has said. So I read it. In that sense, I'm a messenger, conveying, speaking out, a message, but it's not my message. I had nothing to do with the creation of it. I had nothing to do with the content of it. I'm just a conduit. That word came, it got recorded, and God uses, is using me now to speak it. It's not my message. Obadiah was that kind of a man. It wasn't his message. It was a message from God. This is the most important thing for us to grasp. Because if we have this Bible, and if we are committed to understanding that this really is what God has said, then we should be asking him to help us to understand what it is that he's saying and what it is that we should do with it. And not just store it here and be able to recite something, but to have it be a part of us so he can mold and shape us in the way that he wants us to be. Now, the next thing here I want us to notice is this. Now, it says, we have heard a report and a messenger has been sent. We have heard a report and a messenger has been sent. <clears throat> now, a couple of things here. I see these as kind of parallel expressions. And I mentioned that before, that a lot of this is poetic. And poetic expressions are used to convey meaning. And people who understand poetry, especially somebody who could understand Hebrew poetry, could read this in the Hebrew, and they would be able to glean meaning out of it and see some of the nuance in the way the language is used. And, and so we can see some of that in our translations here. But a messenger has been sent. Sent to the nations. And what is the content of the message? Let's look at that. Arise and let us rise up against Edom for battle. This might seem to be an odd kind of expression here because we can think of it this way. God is orchestrating this. These nations are going to rise up against Edom. And they're going to battle Edom. And they're going to banter them. And they're going to decimate them. And whose battle is it? Whose battle is it? See? So, so what's going on here? We, in our early part of our study, talked about God being a sovereign God. He's a creator. 
He has authority of all the nations of the earth. None can escape from him. And he uses them as he will or as he wills. I want us to think about this in this context. And so these nations then, they're going to rise up, but God is, shall we say, orchestrating this because they are instruments in the hands of God to deal to Edom what God has decided is their just portion because of their behavior. I'm continually fascinated when I consider Daniel, the book of Daniel. Of course, said Daniel. In chapter 4, we read about a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who, who, who came to learn about this God whom we're referring to as the sovereign God. He came to learn that. He didn't always know it, but he came to learn. In chapter 4, I'm going to read a few of the verses, but in chapter 4, verse 25, this is what it says. And this is a message to Nebuchadnezzar. It says, they shall drive you from men your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. Can you imagine the most powerful monarch in the world being told a thing like that? That that's what's going to happen to you? You're going to be like the beast. You're going to be fed like an animal. And most, if you say that to one of these people now, they would say there's no way that's going to happen. That's probably what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking too. That's not going to be. But he didn't know. And it says, they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you know. Okay, seven times passing over. You're going to be this, in this condition, seven years, until you know the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That's but he needed to come to know that the most high rules, and he does. He did, and he does. I'm going to skip ahead now. I'm still looking at the book of Daniel in chapter 4. But in verse 34, it says this. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Verse 35, all 
the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the God who's saying this message. Let us rise for battle. And so these nations are to rise for battle. Now I'm going to move on to the next section, which uh, encompasses verses 2 to 4. And I put there that God addresses Edom. Verses 2 through 4. I'm going to read those, and then I will make some comments. Obadiah, verse 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You shall dwell, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend on high, as high as the eagle, though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there, I will bring you down. Those are some powerful words. Now, so what do we have here? We have some very important things going on here. And I want to make mention of some of them. So what's going to happen to Edom? They're going to be made small. They're going to be greatly despised. I see these as parallel expressions. It brings some emphasis to what's going to happen here. They're going to be made small. They're going to be despised. So this is what's going to happen. And now we can say, well, then, why, why is this going to happen to them? Why is it going to happen? Well, the answer is here. The text tells us why it's going to happen. See what it says there? It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Talk about big ideas and important ideas in this little book. I look at 
a lot of verses in the scriptures that talk about pride and deceit and all these kinds of things. Now, this is interesting because, see, pride is a universal problem. Universal. Go to any land, any country, anywhere. Any person anywhere. And find one who has no issue and never has with this idea of pride. I don't think you're going to find anybody or any nation. And then it says deceived. Deceived. Deceit is also a universal problem. A universal problem. So then I raised for myself this question. So what are the fruits of pride and deceit? What are the fruits or the fruit of pride and deceit? Let's look at it from the text in the context of Obadiah and what it says for them. It says something here about their dwelling, the geographical layout of the land where they were, with high, high elevation, with clefts of rock, their habitation being high. So they were in a geographical setting, which for military defense will be superb because it would be very difficult for the enemy to come and to take over with the geographical layout that they had. Now, that geographical layout could provide some benefit, and I'm sure it did. I suspect there were a lot of peoples, or people groups, who wanted to, or maybe thought about, maybe we'll take these guys over, well, maybe not, (laughs) you know, because of what they had. But the problem is, they were overconfident in their geographical location. Overconfident. And they said, well, who can bring us down? So there's a fruit of pride and deceit, being overconfident. And the overconfidence is putting the trust in the wrong place. So the object of trust becomes this geographical layout. But the object of trust should not be that. Because we just talked about a sovereign God who rules. So they said, well, who can bring us down? Who? Now here's the way I understand what's going on here. When they raise the question, who can bring us down? Who will bring me down to the ground? That sounds to me like a rhetorical question. 
A rhetorical question is one which has an implied answer. And so what I'm suggesting is that from the perspective of the Edomites, it was a rhetorical question, and the answer was no one. I can't be brought down. Nobody can do it from the Edomites' perspective. But that wasn't the only uh, perspective to consider. Because from God's perspective, it wasn't a rhetorical question. But rather, it was a question that needed to be answered. Because how do we know it needed to be answered? We know that because God chose to answer it. And he wouldn't have done that if it didn't need to be answered, right? So two perspectives. The perspective of the one whose heart is deceived and the perspective of God. The perspective of God. And so the deceit caused in the place of trust in the wrong place. Deceived. So that when one is deceived, then the assessment, if I can use this phrase, the assessment of the facts on the ground can be far off the mark just because of the deceit. In deceit, trying to assess the facts on the ground and being far off the mark. But for the Edomites, they were fatally off the mark. Not just off the mark, but fatally so. And that's what this book is talking about here. Fatally off the mark. Now, I want to just make a mention here. I put a topic here that I call poetic notes. I've been saying about poetic themes with regard to this book. And so I said, well, I call these poetic notes. (laughs) Obviously, this is my own idea here. But I want us to notice the contrast that are given here between high and low. See, the pride means that they were thinking highly of themselves. That's pride of heart. But God said he would make them small and despised, high and low. They lived in a geographically high place, which they thought would give them security. But God said, high place, low. I will bring you down. Or we can look at a hyperbolic illustration in the next verse, in verse 4 where it says, let me read that verse and then I'll make that remark. Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And I call that a hyperbolic expression. It's an expression which brings energy and and attention to the notion They're not going to actually set themselves as high as the eagle, literally, but it's a figure of speech 
to get your attention to what is being done and said here. Or set themselves so the eagle, the eagle flies, but the stars are so much farther high than they are. So even if you were to be there, put your nest there, God says, you know what? That's no problem for me. I will bring you down from there. That's what God says he'll do. In other words, it's like what we talked about some time ago when we said us to God. You can run, but you can't hide. We can run, but we can't hide. And now let me give a few minutes to this next portion that I had here, and I'll come back. So I put in here this note. Pride and deceit. That's the heading I put. Because I already have said that pride is a universal problem. I want to read some verses from the Bible speaking about pride. In Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 16 and verse 18, here's what it says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A fall? Who wants to fall? Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. That uh, is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. Let me just read this one. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and stole a high and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 12 and 13, for the sign of their mouth and the words, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Or Second Chronicles chapter 32 verse 26. Now, I had this one in here because I just wanted to have at least an antidote to pride. Listen to this one. This is Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 26. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and his inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. That's good. To, to be humble in the sight of God. Proverbs 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and evil way, and a perverse mouth. I hate. Another anecdote. And then verse six, uh, Proverbs 16. Okay, I already read that one. Now, now Jeremiah 49.16. This is pretty much the verse, like the verse we just read, but I'm going to read it from this, from Jeremiah. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart. Oh, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, 
Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there. Pride, a universal problem. And now I'm going to read just one verse here and finish on this note about deceit. And I get back to some of these other things I, I have in here on another time. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's speaking about the natural, unnatural condition of the heart. It's speaking of depravity. So the heart. So when people say they put their trust in themselves, they're way off the mark. Because it's a heart that's not worthy of that trust that they're trusting. I'm over. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to look into your word. And Lord, work in us by your spirit to mold, to shape us to your desired goals and ends. In the name of Christ, we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.